Well, welcome. It's, uh, it's, I don't even know what week it is, but this is Sheep Stuff You Should Know. I'm uh, Dan Macon up here in Auburn, California. Ryan Mahoney down here in Rio Vista. It's another smoky week here in Northern California, but but you guys are getting ready to start lambing, right? Yeah, actually, today I just drove through all the sheep and started to panic. <laughs> I'm not ready. I'm never ready as I want to be, but we're, we're, yeah, there's a lot to do still, and we got to move some bunches around, but they are getting big and starting, the bags are filling up, and, and uh, it's, time, it's that time of year. So This kind of last three weeks for me is always the hardest wait. I'm always excited to get started, always not quite ready, but it seems yeah. like it'll never pass. It's always exciting. So I always, I always get nervous and I run around a little excited the two weeks before. And then that first week in October, usually we don't start really lambing heavy till around the 11th, 12th, somewhere in there. And um, I kind of hit this panic right around the 9th or 8th because we're supposed to start lambing the first and they're not really coming fast and they're all just giant and they're about ready to lamb but they haven't lambed and I think maybe there's some giant medical problem maybe I'm feeding them too much and they're not like what is going on and then all of a sudden you just go out there one day and half of them have lambed. Yep yep it's kind of like kind of like when I played sports you know you're I was always really really nervous till I took the first pop or or fielded the first ground ball or something like that and then everything was fine but but before then I was always thinking what if what if what if yeah that's that that dang overthinkingitis disease yep so. yep exactly yeah okay. well to me lambing usually starts back when we wean and we take our first coals and so today I wanted to talk about how we cull our sheep and why we cull our sheep and just some general culling procedures and then get into the details of how we can, you know, successfully manage or maybe some creative ways to think about, you know, culling sheep and, and, uh, and, and, you know, how we manage the herd health through culling and all those questions. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'll just jump right in and, um, do you want to go ahead and just outline real quick what uh, kind of what a you and your flock goes through in a current year and, and then when it gets to calling your general yeah. calling procedures? Yeah, yeah, you know, I, that it's, it's interesting to think about when the sheep year starts for me too. And I, I think we've all got a little, a little different definition. I think for us, a use year starts when we bring, bring them off dry feed put them back on irrigated pasture sometime in late August um, with the idea that we're getting ready to breed because we're, we're off cycle from you guys. We're, we're lambing in the late, late winter, early spring. Um, but when we come off irrigated pasture, we go through all of the ewes, including the replacements that we've kept and make a decision about, do we want to put this more expensive feed in them or is it time for them to go? Um, and so we'll talk a little more about criteria, but once we've made that decision, the ones that we're going to breed, then we go through a, um, a flushing period where we do some feeding of, of a little higher quality ration, um, for about 30 days, just to increase ovulation. Um, we found based on our, our production system, it really bumps our lambing percentage up. Do you supplement during that time? Yeah, so we they're on here. They've come off a of dry onto irrigated, and then actually just this week, about two weeks before we we turn the bucks in, we'll start hand feeding some grain um, to bump their nutritional intake up. And um, do you have any preference on what kind of grain? We have experimented with lots of things, and I I need to learn from you. I you know it'd be good to good to have a show on that. This last year, we looked at our labor and at um, the cost of having to go get feed versus being able to buy it in bulk from our feed store. And um, we also had a fellow producer here in the foothills that got access to a whole bunch of organic chia seed, which is real high protein, high fat content. So we're mixing, 
dry cob, corn, rolled corn, oats, and barley with this chia seed um, for the second year now. And um, we had had pretty good results with it last year. So we'll, it sounds pretty high power. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a little interesting to handle. Yeah. And uh, I kind of freaked out this summer on irrigated pasture. We had all this, these new broadleafs growing. I thought, what the hell kind of weed did I get here? And realized it was chia that had grown. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So we'll do that for, you know, two weeks before we put the bucks in and the first two weeks that we breed. And then after that, if you've made it, if you're a you in our flock and you've made it that far, you're going to get to stay through the following spring. Just because we don't really have any other times that, that it makes sense to sort things out. Um, after lambing, um, kind of our next, you know, we'll keep pretty close track of, of a couple of different metrics at lambing. And we will mark a U that doesn't measure up in those so that when we do, once we wean, we can sort those U's out too and, and put them on a truck. Um, so I, I think for us, there's kind of two main times before we decide to put feed in them. And then after we've come through lambing that we, we make some pretty hard decisions. How about, how about you? What, what, what does a U go through in your operation? So they, yeah, they, they, um, we take our main calling, our main calling is done at, um, at weaning. So right after weaning, we'll bag and mouth the ewes. Yep. And then, um, we'll do that usually January, February. Um, then we'll wait and we usually trim the feet right after shearing. So then we'll take another shot of coals right after shearing. And then um, anything with real bad, bad feet, we'll, we'll pull out if we, mm -hmm. you know, it's real bad. It's usually a real light coal at that stage. Um, and then the third time that we'll coal is at preg scan. So our open, we'll, we'll, we'll get rid of the open. So we're kind of taking two main coals and then one um, supplemental. Yeah, yeah. We, we have done, we don't scan every year. Um, we have we scanned everything during the drought, the height of the drought, and we did do some calling at that point um, when we scanned the use. That's a really good open. segue. So, it, uh, to one of the questions I had for you later on, but but what what um, how can you use calling to improve your herd health, especially in times of drought? I think that's a that's a probably one of the most critical questions we can ask ourselves as as producers. Um, and I should share a, a I can tell this joke on Roger because I think it's it's a good one. But um, I think the first year that Roger bought sheep and ran sheep with us, we were going through the ewes at weaning, and this really nice, good body condition score, big, strong ewe comes up the alley and. And I said, Roger, she's got to go. She didn't have a lamb. What? She's the nicest you I've got. And I said that. Yeah, but she didn't make anything you could sell this year. And he looks at her and he goes, well, I guess that's the difference between a hobby and a business, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> One of them. <laughs> One of them. But, but getting back to your question, I think for me, there's all sorts of things that lead up to that question. You know, what are the most important factors in your production system? So for us during the drought, it was foot rot and it was the ability to, to have and raise on our own twins. And the only way I could make those decisions is if I'd had records of what we did with that you over the past year, right? I couldn't just look at a you and say, oh, I know we've trimmed your feet and you only had a single last year. I had to go back through my records and, and really look at that um, and make a list before we even got into the corrals about what I thought maybe needed to go. Um, I think it can be a really useful tool for those kinds of health, herd health issues that do seem to have some hereditary 
um, component to them, like foot rot resistance, and probably like parasite resistance too, or, or resilience. Um, when we called during the drought, we sold stuff that we knew had had singles in the past, but we just need to cut our needed to cut our numbers. And I don't. We haven't put. We haven't run sheep through a foot bath probably since 2012 because we had records of who'd be trimming or treating consistently. That's on a much different scale than what you do and different kind of sheep and everything else. But I, I think rather than just saying we're going to sell 20% of the sheep or 30% of the sheep this year, it forced us to be real strategic about what we wanted to improve through getting rid of the ones that didn't fit. How do you, how do you use calling to address those kinds of issues? Yeah, I'm a big believer in, in, um, especially in down markets and in droughts and things when you need to destock, I really try to look at that as an opportunity to improve the genetics you have, improve the efficiencies that are on the ranch. And so rather than looking at, I need to, I need to downsize 10%, 20%, whatever the number is, rather than just lumping off 20% of the herd and selling it, I really like being strategic about what 20% we want to get rid of. And, and in our cow herd this year, because we had no spring rains, we got probably 30% of the feed growth we normally get. And so we're very short of feed. And um, I just had this conversation with Jeff yesterday about um, we need to, we need to come up with a way to offload 50 head. Now, what's the best way to do that? You know, do we, do we, um, do we mouth the cows for the first time in four or five years and just cull heavier? Do we, sell a load of bread replacement heifers? Do we right. sell heifers into the, you know, the bottom end replacements, you know, take our replacements and then take a bottom end off that we sell into the commercial meat migrant? You know, what, there's so many ways to um, improve your herd through these negative uh, markets, if you're willing to put in the work. You do give up some value. You know, if you go to the town with a load of coal used, that's worth a lot less than a load of running age used. Um, and I was going to ask you, since you've got both cattle and sheep, is the, is the fact that you've got a stronger market generally and more marketing options with those cows make your decisions any different with the cattle than it does with the, with the ewes? Uh, yeah, more, market, more, more markets and more options make it easier to run something. Um, I, I don't think that necessarily influences our decisions to Coal. We we we're pretty blessed where we have a pretty decent coal market. We have a two 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 avenues that we're actively selling into right now that are that are returning pretty well. And we've been able to you know if, if when you look at your cost of running inefficient animals, taking a huge loss on one full truckload of ewes that are incredibly inefficient is way cheaper than holding on to them and trying to squeeze an extra 40 <laughs> bucks a head or 30 bucks a head, whatever it is. You know, a lot of times you're better off just getting rid of them. Yep. Um, but it depends on your reasons. So if you're, if, if you're buying, if you bought in some ewes and lambed them out, and then you're going to sell the portion of those ewes as part of your plan on why you bought them, then you need to spend a little more time to maximize the return on those ewes. If you're in a drought situation and you need to liquidate livestock and you go through and you cull your least efficient animals, that's a situation where, you know, heck for 20 bucks a head, you know, sell them, get rid of them. Get them, get them gone. Yeah. That's way cheaper than holding them. So yeah. It, yeah. It's really situational, I would say. And, and on the, on the cattle, it's, um, there's a lot more tools available. So it's a lot more fun to get into the details on how to define coal. Uh, right. Just because the genetic stuff's so advanced, and I mean, you could take pelvic measurements. Nate can't speak right now; too much coffee, I think. <laughs> pelvic measurements and things of that sort to really um, to, to score your cattle or grade your cattle. Yeah, they, um, the tools just aren't as refined. So, on it's, a, it's, a, it's a little more subjective, I think, in sheep anyway, just because we don't have those tools, right? Yeah, and I think I think scale plays into it too. I think uh, smaller yeah. the flock, the easier it is to do utter scores and do these right. other things. Um, I think Joe Fisher mentioned on the on the podcast 
that the Angus genetic information was actually built on the back of small flock breeders. And it's just because they have the time to really take a lot of data points. And yeah. I think that's true in the sheep. Yeah. 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 Um, so uh, I think you kind of already answered when you do your most culling, but you want to go through um, when you cull, what exactly you're looking for when you mouth and bag the ewes? Or yeah, yeah, and I'll, maybe I'll start with with what we look for at lambing that could cause a ewe to get to get marked as a cull too. So because we pasture lamb and and we don't have um, we're not big enough to justify the kind of labor that that would be necessary to, to watch everything. We have, I think for eight or nine years now, used a, an objective scoring system on lambing traits. So we score every ewe on, on her mothering ability, on lambing ease, and on the lamb vigor, which is a, a measure of milk production for us. And a ewe that doesn't measure up in those categories will get cold. So if we have to pull her lamb if she has twins, we pull her lamb, she can't count to two, and one lamb dies because it's not getting enough milk, she's, she's on the call list. Do you see regression or, you know, the, the, from year to year, do you see those animals changing in that regard? We, I think there is some heritability in that, and I think we have improved our maternal, the maternal ability of our flock by calling those that cause problems. Um, I think it, in some cases, it may be somewhat of a, a single trait selection, which is always a little bit dangerous. And that if those, if the worst performing ewes are the ones that are the best mothers, do you really want to keep them? Um, but in our system, a ewe that can take care of twin lambs always weans more weight than a ewe that that we have to bottle feed one of our lambs. You know? Yeah. So that's that's one area. When we mouth and bag, we we are looking at um, we'll look at the incisors, um, and anything that's that's missing teeth in the middle for sure is is something that we would mark to call. If she's missing some outside teeth, but still has a strong enough um, lower row of incisors to graze we might give an older ewe, all things considered, another, another shot at it. But we'll also look at body condition score because I think for us that's related to her ability to get out and graze during tough times. And so if she's thin and missing three or four teeth, that would be one that we'd mark to sell. We also will bag like you will, um, we'll bag it at weaning, but then we also um, fill their udders right before flushing when they come in in August. And um, I'm feeling for hard lumps at that point in, in either side of the udder. We also note at lambing if that ewe's got, um, you know, if she's got really big bottle teats or something like that, that's something we'll note too. And, and if there's other, we can kind of manage around that if she's really good otherwise. But if, if that's a third strike on her, we'll call a ewe that's gotten this shape in teats and maybe missing a tooth or two. Or, Something like that. If you if you bagged your ewes, um, like say at prig scanning, would you miss some of the mastitis or lump bags that you would maybe catch when you did it right at weaning? That's a good question. I think their I think their bags may be too tight to get yeah. much of that at that point. How 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 far out do you scan? Forty five. Well, they're we try to hit forty five day gestation. Oh, okay, so you can, that might be a time you could bag them still. You might be able to feel something like that. Now, I think you're going to feel it more at weaning. Yeah. Um, there's a study that was done either at Wyoming or, or Montana looking at subclinical mastitis in range sheep, and there's probably more of it than we pick up that, that we should be aware of. Oh, I'd say we have a good problem with mastitis. We have a very good relationship with it. We, <laughs> what, we personally. Another another to topic for another day, but I think that'd be a, you know, it'd be interesting to explore how we all cope with that too. I would love to, to get some advice and pick your brain on it. Uh, that, because it's a definitely, I think that's probably one of our main 
reasons we cull is from mastitis. Uh, our feed source is pretty mild, pretty forgiving. Yep. And so uh, teeth, we don't, we cull on teeth if they're missing, if they're missing all their teeth and they're thin in condition, we'll cull them. But if they're missing three quarters of their teeth and their body condition is decent, we'll keep them a lot of times. Yeah, if we've got a, if we've got a you that's missing teeth, but, but she raised lambs and she came in in August in good body condition, we'll keep her. Yeah, I don't, I don't like telling any of my guys this, but when I'm bagging out ewes, if I bag her and the bag's okay and her body condition is good, a lot of times I won't even open her mouth. <laughs> so how do, that's a good question. What's, what's your process? Bag, body condition, and then mouth? Uh, so, yeah, it, um, I, I, I'm always very nervous to cull solely based on body condition. It has, yeah, to, have, it has to be down in condition and something else because if you're culling on body condition so often you're giving away that you that is milking more than anything else and um you know and, I, and so i really caution against that um it's always got to be if she's down in condition and she has no teeth if you could tie the reason why she's down in condition to a symptom yep. then we can justify it so if there's a uh, mastitis present she's thin she obviously goes if there's missing teeth substantial missing teeth and she's thin then she'll go but if she's just down in condition but her bag's good and her you know her mouth is decent that will oftentimes we'll keep her because we're doing this work right after we wean that lamb off and so yeah she's heavy milking still and and um, we always when we bag we always shoot a little milk into the palm of our hands to look at the milk itself oh okay okay and, um, you know, just to look at what it looks like and make sure it's not clear yeah. or chunky or anything. That's a good A lot of times you have a really nice bag, but then it'll be shooting just pure water, liquid or something. Um, That's or, or you'll go and do that and then your hand will be full of pus and it'll smell for the next six days. <laughs> <laughs> That's another, another downside of the sheep. That's <laughs> a hazard of the job. Yeah, it is. <laughs> No, that's a, I think that's a great suggestion. Um, something that we'd incorporate into our, into our weaning procedure. I think that's a great idea. What, um, is there any, anything in the lambing shed that a you can do to get a ticket out? Um, so yeah, we, we've changed that up a little bit. We used to graft a lot and do a lot of work in the barn and we eliminated that all a year ago. Um, just because the labor costs were so high. And um, last year it was just, it was just lovely. You know, when they lose their lambs, you just cull them. So if they lose a lamb, we cull it immediately. We don't graft something else on. We just, we, um, we send her right to the cull pen. Yep. If, um, if we milk her out or, you know, if she has, if she's short of milk and has a single and that single is going to be okay, but she's short, we'll put a, we'll put a solid blue ear tag, a clip in ear tag in the ear. And then when we wean, we will cull her. So we have that tag to mark. And we'll do that too if there's like mastitis in one side, but the other side's okay is probably the most common. Yeah. We'll keep, we'll keep that lamb on her side, but we'll have that tag as a visual marker along with uh, usually we'll wand into the software that she's a cull as well. And then she'll be cold later on. Um, so I'd say that those are the main two. We do that same thing and I'll set the, the wand to set to sound an alarm next time we scan her. Yep. So that we know that she needs to go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that works pretty good. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd say teeth, teeth are probably the least important thing we look at, but they're important to look at. Yeah. Yeah. And I, that, I think that's the same for us. A, a you that is milking heavy is going to drop more body condition. And the, the other thing too, I think is really important on culling is knowing the feed source that you're on. So if you're going out custom grazing or you're out in the high desert, um, you need those teeth. If you're in the Muslim Hills or if you're in some coastal range type stuff or real mild feed, um, you can actually make a ton of money buying coal ewes from the high desert and running them in that environment because they have to coal for teeth but you yep. don't have to and so you can take a broken mouth ewe 
and run it. My grandpa started in the cows by buying broken mouth cows out of Nevada and running them for four or five more years. And it was just a, it was a brilliant business model that, that did really well for him. I've been reading about, about some of the UK system where they'll take those hill ewes and, and run them for three or four years and they start wearing down in the, in the Northern mountains in, in Britain and they'll sell them to lowland farmers that still have good solid feed and they'll get another four or five years out of them, you know? And, yeah, I can attest to that. That does work yeah. in, in, the, in our area, but you have to be very astute and attentive to the feed. If you go and take those broken mouth ewes and you run them on um, wheat stubble and they got no teeth to pick up the grain off the dirt, well, they're going to starve to death. But if yep. you're going on native range and you're able to move them around or, you know, say put them on irrigated pasture, well, gosh, you can, you, you can run a broken mouth ewe for quite a few years and just yeah. it's fine. Yeah. So, which yeah. is why we look at body condition and teeth. Right. 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 Absolutely. So do you ever give second chances? <laughs> Occasionally. Yeah. Occasionally. Are the better of you or what happens? <laughs> you know, if it's a young you, if it's a young you that had twins her first year through and and she came up open, but she's still in good shape. I might give her an, another chance. Um, we had, we've had a couple of sheep that were just tremendous mothers, would raise three on their own, raised all good lambs. Um, if she had one the next year and, and had a little hiccup in that, I'd give her one more shot. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, we had a ewe this year that we actually had bought, actually I bought it when Joe Fisher decided to get rid of his sheep. We bought oh, the sheep back from him. And uh, this ewe aborted at about 140 days the first year. So couldn't find anything wrong with the lamb. Just thought, eh, you know, something happened. We'll try her one more year. And she aborted at day 141 this year. So uh, she was on the trailer two weeks ago. Somebody else now owns her. Yeah. How about you? Do you ever give second chances? Uh, we used to. We used to do a lot of it, but now we don't do hardly any of it. Um, the only spot where you'll get a second chance um, right now is a ewe lamb. We, we turn the expose the ewe lambs at a very young age, um, which we're going to not do this next year. We decided to, to probably scrap that and just run them a full term and then expose them. Um, just it's, I think it'll make a better lamb, make a better you. Just there's so much energy going into growing and trying yeah. to grow a lamb at the same time. And we're not getting, we're not getting a good enough percentage of bread to, to make, make it, it worth it. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to probably scrap that. But that was where we were given second chances was in those. Um, but just the way we've been operating the last four or five years in the direction with the data collection, um, there's really, we, we don't, we can't make it. We can't make an argument to keep them. Keep right. trying, but we can't. Right. You know. Right. That. So well, that's a. That, I think that's a good point too. And I. I can sometimes talk myself in. So for example, we had a U this last year. Had twins. Good mom. About three days in, she started rejecting one of the lambs, and I wasn't bright enough to figure out that that lamb had erupted, sharp teeth and was fighting on mom and and there was a reason that she was rejecting it i learned that from you I went to your uh, lambing school and you showed me your file and i was like that is <laughs> brilliant and that year at lambing i had like six of them do that where it was just they popped their teeth and they just the mother wouldn't they wanted the lamb but couldn't wouldn't let it nurse yeah yeah, yeah. And i have to relearn that lesson it seems like about every three years <laughs> yeah but but i would not sell a you like that that all of a sudden rejected a lamb because it was hurting her you know, I would, I would give her another shot out of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, gosh, I do this every single episode now where I have a question that popped in my head and then I forget what the question is. <laughs> Sign that we're both too damn busy. Ah, too, I don't know. I'm getting old, I think. Can't hear anymore. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> Just wait. I Just know. Wait. That's what everybody tells me. Um, <laughs> So do, do you ever, what, what are the consequences of calling too deep? Mm. 
That's a good question too. I think I so I, I guess one of the examples would be if if our focus on maternal ability doesn't take into account those other factors that influence our profitability. I think I think single trait selection can send you down a road that you don't know you're going down till you get to the, the dead end. Um, I think that could be an issue. I think, you know, I think it, when you get in, we have been in years past in an expansion mode and trying to grow our numbers, but also trying to call anything that had bad feed or, um, you know, trying to be real strict about some of those other parameters. Maybe it didn't allow us to grow as fast as, as we wanted to. Um, but by the same token, we made progress too. I, what about you? Oh, it is pretty expensive when you cut cold beef. It definitely costs money when you cold too deep, especially when you start pushing genetic trends. Yep. Um, you have to make sure you budget into your budget the, that loss of revenue the following. Usually it's a yeah. hit. Yeah. Uh, and so, you, like with our, uh, see, we went to a 75 day lambing window here a year ago. When we did that, we penciled in we would lose 15% of the herd. And we did all the math and decided, okay, it's worth losing that 15% because of the labor savings. And so we did it. We lost 11%. And then now this year, we're really actually, is the first year we've reaped the benefit of that efficiency because it's that first full year on that cycle. And um, it's worked out for our, for our numbers and for the data. So yeah, I, I think it is expensive and it's very dangerous to, I, I also think it's very dangerous to try to do too many things at once. When you try to cold too deep for too many traits at the same time, yeah, you can, you, you, you lose track of whether what you're doing is effective or not, because it's too easy to argue one or the other is showing a benefit. And so I, I always like trying to, if we're going to make one, I like making one change and measuring it and then another change and measuring it rather than trying to do five changes and measuring it. There was, that's a good oh, point. Yeah. There was like, I think it was like five, six years ago. We, we changed, um, we changed how we sourced our Rams. We changed the quality of hay we were alfalfa we were supplementing with. And um, then we also um, changed our mineral that we were feeding. And we saw an increase in our productivity. But I still to this day don't know which of the three had the biggest effect. Right. I know it was positive, but I have no idea which of those three worked. Right. And, and right. I, you can get, I, you know, you can get a situation where maybe that mineral and that hay did, did a ton of work, but we should have never switched bucks. Or maybe we, the bucks did all the work and the mineral and hay was a waste. Yeah. I mean, you have no idea uh, when you make too many changes. So. I think that's a really good point. I, I'll go back to our experience in the drought. One of the questions that I have about how we responded to the last drought um, was a significant downsizing. We called a lot of animals. Mm -hmm. And I think, while in the short term, that helped us not have to buy feed. In the long term, I think probably we lost some good genetics. And I think, you know, we can't go out and just buy a U that fits our system. We, we almost have to make them. And so we've diminished our capacity to make U's to replace the ones that are aging out. I think there's some, I want to go back and look at the economics of that because I think there's some trade-offs that I missed. Um, so how, how do you, how do you use choline to act to like improve your genetics? How do you, we touched on it a bit and you touched on it there in that answer, but how do you, how do you change your genetics by adjusting your choline practices? I want to ask you that question too. I, I think for me, it starts with understanding what of our production issues are related to genetics first. So I, I think that there is some heritability in foot rot, for example. And um, so I think, I think understanding those components, I think there's some heritability in, in the maternal traits that are important for us. 
Um, I don't know with the kind of sheep that, that we raise that knowing their micron count really matters. It's all going to be coarse, you yeah. know? <laughs> so um, all things being equal, a you that, that yields a heavier fleece is going to hopefully be worth a little bit more, but, but there's not a whole lot of point in us calling those that are under 27 or over 27 to, to improve our wool quality. You know? how, how, do you, how do you look at, at genetics and calling, Ryan? Um, so the big, the biggest way we were actually, or I feel we've been able to improve our genetics has been splitting our herd into a maternal and terminal side. Okay. So ra rather than like your, your foot rot's a really good example. So we want to improve the feed on our ewes through genetic selection. Rather than just culling all the sheep that have bad feet, we breed all the sheep with bad feet to terminal sires and still trim them. So they work their way out through attrition over a period of five years, rather than just selling 50% of the herd. Yeah. And, and so that, that was probably, that, that, that was the biggest um, benefit for improving genetics through without, but that's not adjusting our culling procedures. Uh, it's maintaining your level of production, but it's also allowing you to address those genetic issues over time. Yeah. So, but where we did, use choline to improve the genetics was switching to that window, the, the lambing window. When we tighten that window up, you have to get rid of those sheep. You can't keep them. You can't give them another chance. We can't keep stretching them out. And so that's a situation where you do need to bite the bullet and change it. And it works good. I think it's important to understand the trait itself too, because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. uh, foot rot is foot rot resistant and I'm not a scientist. I'm a religious studies major that just has some <laughs> sheep. So don't take this with a grain of salt, but um, foot rot is not anywhere near as heritable as wool. So your, right. your, your micron count on you and your fleece quality is highly heritable. Foot rot resistance is probably fairly low heritability. A lot of the maternal line traits are fairly low Yep. Um, heritability. The carcass traits are very highly heritable. So yep. um, it's really important to kind of identify what you're after. And then, because uh, if you're going to cull half your herd for a low heritable trait, that's probably a bad decision. If you're going to um, split your herd and maintain them and try to push the herd in a direction, understanding it's lowly heritable, that I think is a more prudent approach. Because you, you won't go as broke. <laughs> you still could go right. broke, it's not as broke. Yeah. <laughs> or at least as fast. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I think so I think for at our scale, you know, not having not having the scale um, necessary to kind of split those ones that we want to work out through the system, having kind of a scorecard that forces us to think beyond one trait, but but provide some relative weight for something like foot rot versus um, twinning is kind of helpful to, to look at the bigger picture on that you and then, and then make a decision. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I like that scorecard idea. I mean, te technically that's what the EID tags are. Right. But you need something that gets back to that, whatever, when you collect data, you got to be able to use that data. So you have right. to know yourself and make sure the data that's being collected is in a form that you can use. Right. Right. Yeah. And that a decision based on that data is moving you in a direction you want to move. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, cool. Well, um, how else do you keep track? I mean, you got a, so you got a scorecard that you use to kind of track the use that need to be cold. Do you have any other visual IDs or anything like that that you use? Yeah, we'll mark stuff, you know, when they're, um, when we're, if we're not, if we don't, for us being small, it's not worth me taking two old ewes to the sale. You know, it's a, it's a 200 mile round trip to go to the sale. So I try to wait till I have enough of them to go to make it worth my time. Um, but they get a, they get a paint brand or an ear notch, usually a paint, paint mark for us so that I know the next time they come through how many I've got. What about how do you guys how do you guys mark? Uh, we have that blue tag. We'll put it in their ear, and then yeah, um, and then we'll also we'll use the the scanners to put something in. Yeah, 
once, yeah. once they're separated out, their ID is cold in the system. So if they ever jump a fence and get back in, the alarm will go off and they'll yeah. get back out. Yeah, that's what we'll do too. So what do you? What? Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to ask about random change of subject. You got something else? What do you guys do with your calls? Where do they go? Ah, uh, that's how oh, I skipped that question, didn't I? Um, I I want I want to know your secret. It's a secret, secret. <laughs> um, so we sell them. We sell them to one guy that uh, takes them and sells them into restaurants, is into Hispanic restaurants, is barbacoa meat. Oh, okay. Barbacoa is traditional Mexican dish. It's actually yep. made from coal you. Yep. Um, and then I have another guy that sells it into the kind of the, because they're both ethnic market, but into kind of the Muslim world where mm -hmm. they make uh, they make kind of lean mutton stew with mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. those are those are those. And when we get too many big ones, we'll end up selling a truckload. I, I'll call up a you broker and market a truckload if we get too many backed up in the system. Then we'll yeah. I'm yeah. usually ready. When I call them, I'm usually ready to um, get a pretty low price. This last year was great, though. It was actually pretty high. We sold um, we sold some ewes. Oh, when was it? End of August, and um, you know they were they were in decent shape. All but one were in decent shape. But I was really pleasantly surprised at the prices we got for them. Really pleasantly surprised. Yeah, might sell some more. <laughs> yeah so how about rams you how do you cool your rams you know we um that's a that's a great question because of the three-tier system that we use um before we got into some of these shropshire sheep we were never breeding you breeding rams to daughters or granddaughters and so we could keep a ram pretty long term um until he wasn't wasn't productive anymore or something else developed that was a problem um <laughs> my wife will not be happy with me sharing this story but we had a, a ram <laughs> that was uh it was it was a club lamb sire that um she made a pet out of and um he had no fear of anybody and one of those, you never turn your back on a ram, but this guy, you could barely turn your front on either. And uh, last time I went out to check rams, he absolutely took me out. I turned my back for about two seconds and he put me on the ground. And um, he was on the trailer into last month when we went yeah. to Escalon. So behavioral calls are, are not, a, I'm not beyond behavioral calling. Yeah. In that case, how, how do you, what do you do with rams? How do you call your rams? Uh, we palpate them uh, twice. We do it twice a year. We'll palpate okay. them. And, and what then, are you looking for, Ryan? Uh, you're looking, so we feel the, the two testicles and we're feeling for uh, uh, discrepancy between the two. So one too large, one too small, or, or any kind of growth on there. Um, yep. We'll palpate them and then uh, make sure the cords and everything are connected properly. Yep. Then we check up underneath the front, uh, the front legs. They'll get gland growths there, um, which is symptomatic, potentially symptomatic of epididymitis, I guess. Okay. And then also up underneath the jaw, we'll feel for swollen glands as well. Okay. And so if they have any of those um, symptoms, then we'll uh, call them. We tend not to mouth them. Uh, yeah. Just because they they work pretty hard, and usually they'll come up with a symptom or something. If they're really thin, then we'll look into their mouth just to see. But a lot of times those real thin rams are the ones that are working too hard. So once again, you don't want to, you know, put the cart ahead of the horse and, right. you know, keep your big fat ones that are sitting in the corner doing nothing and cool. <laughs> Laying in the shade all day. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's kind of the procedure. So we I think twice a year. We did semen check one year and, um, the 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 vet was surprised, but the the, the activity in the ram semen was so much higher than our bulls. Really, through they're incredibly active. Really, when you look at the microscope, it was like twice as active as a normal bull. That's interesting. I don't know. That's you really ask, interesting. You ask your wife. 
I will. I will. We have interesting dinner conversations. I bet. Here. Yeah. <laughs> I always love getting to go to lunch with like a vet or a medicine salesman and sit there <laughs> in a booth next to a nice couple enjoying an evening and talk about all sorts of diseases and girls. <laughs> when Sammy was in vet school, invariably the dinner conversation would turn to, well, this looks like what I just treated last week. And it's on your plate. You're trying to eat yeah. it, you know? Yeah. No, I, the, the RAM um, evaluation, that's something else where I think we could step up our game, Ryan. Those are good. Those are really good suggestions. Yeah, when do you do that? What time of year? Uh, twice. So pre-breeding and post-breeding. Okay. Okay. So before we turn them in and right after we pull them. We'll okay. Go Just because, I mean, those, those RAMs are so, uh, they do such valuable work. And if you end up having something that's either shooting blanks or passing some kind of disease around, uh, yeah. you need it out. And, um, you know, I've heard horror stories of people turning up with a 70% lamb crop because they never checked the rams. Yeah. So it's, I think it's really important. If you want to increase your productivity in your sheep, cull your rams and really right. pay attention to those rams. Right. Yeah. Right. Cool your ewes too, but cull those rams. What, what's your ram to you ratio at breeding time? Not to change the subject. Uh, we do one to 25 on our suffix, on our terminal line ones. And then we do um, like anywhere from one to 35 to one to 50 on the maternal side. Okay. So, okay. It de depends on the bunch and what we're trying to get. Our, yeah. our year, our ewe lambs, we were only doing like one to 150 because they just, they were, they, you know, they're too immature to breed. So we just yeah. put a couple in there to catch what was ready. So. Yeah. Yeah. So then I got one, one more question for you. And um, it's a theoretical question, but what is worth more after this colon conversation? What is worth more? A open yearling ready to breed that will typically breed up 80% at $250 a head or a good, solid, proven running age you at $200 a head? Oh, man. That's a, that's, a, that's a really good question. I'd have to sit down with a pen and a <clears throat> pencil on a piece of paper to kind of work through that. Um, and I think for me, there'd be some other circumstances. You know what? Oh, yeah. where, where, where were they running? What were they on? All those kinds of things. And how old, we all mean a little something different by running age, you know, yeah. that's probably part of the question too. I think in our system, all other things being equal, that yearling would probably have more value to us because I'd, I would suspect on average, I'd get two more lamb crops out of her than I would out of the running age you, but, but I'd want to, sit down and think on that a little bit. How, how would you figure that question? Um, it's always relative to the price spread, but I would take a proven you out of a well-managed herd over a yearling, simply because the amount of dries you get the first year. Okay. That, that adds so much money to the cost, to your purchase cost. And I've always right. been impressed at how high the value of ewe lambs and yearlings are versus running age ewes. And a lot of that's due to the fact that they are worth more because you probably have more genetic control on those yearlings yeah. versus buying a running age use because everyone defines running age use differently. But I just, yeah, I don't know. I've always, I always enjoy that question and it's always six one way, half a dozen the other, but. Uh, I think that's a question that needs to be debated over probably a nice um, whiskey or, um, you know, over a campfire somewhere that that's, one of those questions that there probably is no wrong answer to all relative to the deal you're looking at i think and you get more philosophical the longer you're sitting around the campfire anyway oh man you should, yeah you should go to a campfire with me i get i get really <laughs> <laughs> all right well, I, think, I think we ran past our hour dan but uh I, uh, I, Great conversation. I learned a bunch today, Ryan. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, I learned a bunch too. That was good. I, I really like that scorecard idea. 
especially kind of for a you know a smaller flock just to, some real easy way to compare traits yeah uh, across the board to make sure you're not single trait selecting because it's definitely easy when you're just bagging a malvin you're really i mean it's not a trait it's a disease but you're you're looking at one thing and to be able to look at kind of a spectrum and weigh it i, I really yep. like that idea that's good so anyway. well have a good have a good trip up north Thank you. Enjoy the nice, nice foggy weather, <laughs> even though it's soaked. But just pretend it's fog and go out and enjoy yourself. Again, I've been I'm frustrated. I've been pretending I'm at the coast for the last three weeks. It's been yeah, <laughs> real good. <laughs> All right, man. You think talk to you next week. You too. Sure. Bye bye. Bye.